1: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
2: I invite the CMA to adopt the draft decision entitled, Outcome of the First Global Stock take. Hearing no objection, it is so decided.
3: Well, we've got a new climate deal. That was COP28 President Sultan al-Jabba announcing the new agreement to a standing ovation. What the agreement includes, what's not there, and whether it was deserving of applause is coming up on today's episode of New Scientist Weekly. I'm Timothy Revel in New York.
4: And I'm Christy Taylor, also in New York. Also on this show, we'll talk about an AI mathematician built by Google DeepMind, and I don't mean Tim, the unusual trick seals use to keep warm, an enigma about our clumpy cosmos, and what exactly stress does to your sleep, besides trash it entirely. Oh, and of course, we'll also be discussing the science of didgeridoos.
3: But first, the big news of the week is that COP28 has come to a close and has reached an agreement. Here's COP28 President Sultan al-Jabba.
2: My colleagues and friends, you did step up. You showed flexibility, and you put common interest ahead of self-interest. We have the basis to make transformational change happen. Let us finish what we have started. Let us unite, act, and now deliver.
4: Our reporter, James Deneen, was there in Dubai to watch proceedings unfold and keep an eye on reactions in the room.
5: So, I'm here at the Expo 2020 Convention Center in Dubai, where moments ago, countries agreed for the first time that tackling climate change requires transitioning away from fossil fuels to reach net zero by 2050. That language, specifically mentioning fossil fuels, hasn't appeared in any agreement in the nearly 30 years these summits have been going on, even though burning fossil fuels is the primary source of our greenhouse gas emissions. I'm in the lobby outside the big room where countries are sharing their concluding thoughts, and I'd say the mood is enthusiastic but exhausted. It's been a very long two weeks of negotiations, and the issue of where countries would find compromise on the future of fossil fuels has been, unsurprisingly, very contentious.
4: It's been a controversial conference overall, and the agreement, too, has had mixed reactions. The controversy began with the original decision to host the event in the UAE, one of the world's largest producers of fossil fuels. Then, there was the appointment of Sultan al-Jabber as president. He is chair of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company as well. That all meant that there was a worry that fossil fuel companies would have too much say over the proceedings.
3: One of the biggest sticking points with the agreement was around the use of fossil fuels and exactly what language should be used about them. Many countries, scientists and advisors argued that the agreement should specifically say that fossil fuels will be phased out. But as James said, the final language was instead about a transition away from fossil fuels. That was a sort of compromise after oil exporting countries and lower income countries who see fossil fuels as crucial to their economic development pushed back against the phase-out language. Here's James again.
5: Countries were able to find compromise in language that calls for transitioning away from fossil fuels in line with reaching net zero by 2050, as well as a number of other climate targets like a goal to triple renewable energy and double energy efficiency by 2030. There was a big standing ovation when countries adopted the agreement, but many observers in countries are dissatisfied with it, pointing out loopholes and weaknesses that will test how forcefully this sends the signal that the fossil fuel era is ending. Even so, the scrutiny fossil fuels have faced at this summit, hosted in the oil-rich United Arab Emirates of all places and during the hottest year on record, is unprecedented. And I think it has clearly shifted how the world looks at fossil fuels and climate change.
4: The agreement is a landmark deal it signals the beginning of the end of fossil fuels, it includes some money for countries most affected by climate change, it sets goals for more renewables, and it includes language like achieving net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. But even as COP delegates have been saying this whole summit, the science is clear. The world can no longer keep global warming under 1.5 degrees Celsius. The question is, how far do we overshoot it and how quickly can we bring it back? A November report found that even if all existing climate pledges are kept, we're heading towards double that goal, three degrees of warming, with all of the additional damage and risk of catastrophic change that comes along with that. Speaking for myself, Tim, it feels like not enough is happening here.
3: Yeah, I do feel like we should applaud progress. And it's pretty remarkable that COP in the UAE of all places has managed to make progress on fossil fuels. As Dan Jørgensen, the climate minister of Denmark, told us. We're standing here in an oil country, surrounded by oil countries, saying, let's move away from oil. But it does also feel like this is all a political achievement based on the political reality of what's currently possible. But that's not the same as the scientific reality of what is needed. And we know, even with the progress made over the last two weeks, we're still a long way from that.
4: Google DeepMind has made a big claim this week first-ever scientific discovery by an AI chatbot. That discovery is a mathematical one, as the new chatbot is an AI mathematician. Here to tell us all about it is tech reporter Matt Sparks. Hey, Matt. Hi, Christy. So, Matt, why is DeepMind making this claim? I know their AIs have made lots of discoveries over the years, right? They have solved protein folding and improved weather prediction. So why don't these count as scientific discoveries?
6: Yeah. So previously, DeepMind has made really specific AI models for really specific tasks, and they trained that on on niche data. So the protein folding AI that you mentioned, that got trained on data about protein structures and how they folded. And then all that model did was map out protein folding. What's happened now is that DeepMind has used a large language model, also called a chatbot, which is like ChatGPT or Google's Gemini, to discover new solutions to mathematical and computing problems.
4: So getting a piece of computer software to create new math is definitely not to be sniffed at. But if they've achieved this sort of thing before with one type of AI, how big is this discovery really? How does it all add up?
6: Well, the interesting thing uh, here is that large language models, they tend to hallucinate. So we've all seen responses from chatbots where they get facts wrong or they just entirely make up people or organizations. They make this really impressive, compelling output, but you, you can't really trust what they're saying. So what DeepMind recognised is that these models, you know, for want of a better word, they're creative. So they've tried to harness that safely by building a layer on top that checks the ideas and solutions that it comes up with to make sure they're accurate and reliable. That's relatively easy in mathematics or computer science, but not so easy in biology or chemistry. So there's, there's definitely an area where this will work and lots of areas where it won't work. This new model is called FunSearch, Basically, it takes a description of a problem as an input, creates some solutions, and then checks them all for accuracy. The ones that are accurate and promising, they're then fed back in and improved by the AI. And then you you run that process enough times and you can sort of create some innovative new solutions.
3: I saw that DeepMind is talking about 90% of the output of the model being effectively useless, which it sounds quite bad at first, but then I was thinking back to my brief career as a mathematician, that would actually (laughs) be quite good had it been me. These mathematical problems that the AI has worked on, what actually are they? I I assume we're talking about something quite complicated.
6: Yeah, there's, there's a couple of examples in the paper. One is the cap set problem, which basically involves determining patterns of points where no three of those points make a straight line. You can imagine that gets really hard to to calculate by brute force mm-hmm. as you add more and more points. FunSearch found a larger set of points where that holds true in eight dimensions than was previously known. So it's quite niche, but quite important. <laughs> it also found new solutions to the bin packing problem, which is uh, the, the problem of efficiently placing objects of various sizes into containers really efficiently, which you can imagine you know, is really intriguing for transport and logistics companies.
3: Mm, so if these are actually new solutions how how does the AI check them how How do we know that the AI is not still hallucinating and just making up solutions
6: like i said before if you if you were doing this for biology or chemistry, that would be really hard because a solution for a problem could be a molecule and then you would have to synthesize that molecule test it. But in mathematics and computing, it's really testable if you're creating computer code to solve a certain problem, run that code and see if it provides a valid solution, so it's quite easy to verify these problems it's very hard to come up with a solution and then really easy to check a solution
4: well and, and is there a bigger picture here you know are there some discoveries that this model could make beyond you know advancing logistics as you already mentioned
6: honestly any anything that can be sort of described mathematically or any problem that involves computer code you could theoretically set this uh, fun search algorithm onto it so deep minds engineers, they told me they're looking to apply this to all sorts of problems uh, inside and outside Google. So you can imagine a company like Google that has millions of chips doing millions of jobs for millions of users. There's a lot of scope for making processes really efficient, you know. So if they can shave 1% off the computational cost of doing a Google search, that's potentially a lot of money for them. So there's a lot of places where I think this could really uh, have an impact.
4: For the last few months, we have undergone a massive reporting project on the science of cannabis. And as part of that, we produce produced a three-part special podcast series, too.
3: Episode one on the ancient origins of the drug and episode two on what it does to the mind and body are available now in the New Scientist podcast feed. And the finale about the future of marijuana will be released on Sunday, where we tackle issues like the growing potency of cannabis and its staggering environmental footprint One kilogram of pot grown indoors would generate 4,600 kilograms of carbon dioxide. And the entire industry was producing the same carbon emissions as driving 3 million cars for a year. It's an amazing and captivating listen, so download it now to listen to Over the Holidays.
4: And you can look forward to a special musical guest in Culture Lab this Tuesday with an interview with the Scottish composer Erland Cooper. His new album is An Exploration of Climate Change and Melting Ice. And we'll hear from him about the process of bringing music and the environment into conversation with each other.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
3: It's become a little chilly in New York at the moment, so the big coats are out along with the hats and scarves, as is the human way. But for other animals, they've got other methods to stay warm. And we're just uncovering that seals have a particularly unusual trick that helps them keep warm that involves their noses. Our reporter Chen Lai has the story. Hi, Chen. Hello. When I think of seals keeping warm, I'm thinking about huge, blubbery bodies, not really their noses. So what's so special about a seal nose?
7: So, first of all, most mammals and birds have a complex bone in their nose called the maxilloturbinates, which helps with breathing, even as humans have them. These bones are also known as nasal concha because they have this sprawling, curly shape, a bit like a seashell. But it turns out that seals have the most intricate maxilloturbinate that have ever been studied.
3: Okay, that that does sound like a pretty special nose. How did scientists figure out that it was so complex?
7: So we already knew that seals have different noses depending on their environment. Arctic and Antarctic seals, for example, have thick spongy noses, while Mediterranean seal noses are much less dense. So scientists wanted to know if there are differences inside the nose and took CT scans of an Arctic seal and a subtropical seal to find out. So what did these scans
4: reveal, Chen, besides, I don't know, maybe some mucus?
7: (laughs) Not mucus, fortunately. Um, But it (laughs) does turn out that these seals have incredibly elaborate maxilloturbinate. But Arctic seals were even more complex than the non-Arctic seals. It kind of looks like a maze with very delicate branches of bone. Sounds really beautiful, actually. How does this actually keep them warm, though?
4: I feel like it maybe involves creating more surface area or something like that, because nature does that for so many situations.
7: You're on the right lines. So for any mammal that lives in chilly Arctic conditions, breathing tends to result in the loss of heat and water. The maxilloturbinate, which is covered in a thin layer of tissue, is made to limit these losses as much as possible. So when you breathe in, the air passes through this labyrinth of bone, which warms up and humidifies the air before it reaches the lungs. The more complex the shape, the more time it takes to reach the lung, which means it gets warmed up by the surrounding tissues even more. And it's exactly the same with returning moisture. The more complicated the root, the more moisture is kept in the body.
3: Mm. And so with these seals, they have a very complicated route, the most complicated maxilloturbinate ever found. How much does that actually help them keep warm?
7: Quite a lot, actually. So after scanning the bones, the team recreated 3D models in a simulation to see how it affected their breathing and found that Arctic seals retained 94% of the water they breathe in and out. They were also much more efficient than their more tropical cousins at retaining heat and moisture. So at minus 30 degrees Celsius, for example, the subtropical seal lost 1.45 times more heat and three and a half times more water than the Arctic seal. Similarly, at 10 degrees Celsius, the subtropical seal lost about one and a half times more water and heat than the Arctic seal. So it really goes to show how brilliantly these seals have evolved to thrive in the cold. Regret to
4: inform you that there's something wrong with the universe. Again. The way that matter clumps together on very large scales seems to be a little off. And if that stacks up, that would mean there is something wrong with the standard model of cosmology, which is our best understanding of all the stuff in the universe and how it behaves and evolves. Thankfully, Leia Crane, space reporter, is here to help us understand what's going on. Hello. So help us out. How big is this problem?
2: (laughs) So... It's often the case that there's a problem with our understanding of the universe, but this time it is potentially a big one.
4: Okay, talk us through it. Hold my hand. How did the issue
2: come about? So there's this number called S8, which generally measures how clumped together all of the matter in the universe is. And there's two ways to measure it. We can look at the cosmic microwave background, which is leftover light from the Big Bang. And we can propagate that light forward using our best models for how the universe behaves. That's the standard model. Or we can measure it directly in the nearby universe using a phenomenon called gravitational microlensing.
4: Okay, gravitational lensing. That's when gravity from nearby objects warps the light from distant objects, right? So how do we use that to measure
2: clumpiness? Exactly. So we look at that lens light, which makes the distant galaxies look all stretched and warped. And we use that stretch to measure the distribution of matter between us and the distant galaxies. It's pretty much the only way to measure the distribution of dark matter because we can't see it, hence dark. But we can see how its gravity affects the light from other objects.
3: So there's these two ways to measure the universe's clumpiness. There's the gravitational lensing one, and then there's the cosmic microwave background one. I've seen this pattern before. I'm guessing the two don't actually (laughs) match. We've got ourselves a cosmic discrepancy.
2: Yeah, we have. uh, It is not the only discrepancy, but it's one of the top three, I'd say. (laughs) Um, So the lensing measurements give a value that's just a little bit less clumpy than the cosmic microwave background. So this isn't 100% new as a problem but researchers kind of thought that new analyses from the Subaru telescope in Japan would either make the problem worse or make it go away. And it's staying pretty consistent with every new lensing measurement, which is a little bit of a surprise.
3: Is there any chance this could still just be an error with the
2: measurements? Absolutely. There's definitely still some chance of that. There are three major experiments measuring this, and they do share some calibration things and some data processing things. So there could be a shared error still, but it would have to be an error that all three of those are making. It will probably all be hammered out with the next generation of big, huge telescopes, though, and those are being built and coming online over the next few years.
4: So if it's not an error, what does that mean for the universe? Should it be scared? Is this just a moment where we have to hold an uncomfortable contradiction and see where it takes us?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, that's how science works. We don't know yet. We'll figure it out. When I talked to the researchers, it seemed like we don't really have a full explanation yet of what this could mean, but there are a lot of possibilities. It's a pretty small difference, so it could be a fairly subtle misunderstanding. But the main things are we might not fully understand how dark matter clusters with itself, or dark energy could change over time in a way we didn't expect or it could even be as basic as a little mistake in our theories about the regular matter around supermassive black holes or something like that. It's really still all up in the air for now.
4: Tim, you know what's been keeping me up at night? Um,
3: uh, the clumpiness of the universe?
4: <laughs> well, well, now. But what I was going to say is I'm kept up by how stress affects sleep. You know when you get in that cycle of being awake, then being stressed that you're still awake? But there's good news on that front, as researchers may have now worked out what is in the brain that means stress and sleep don't actually go so well together.
3: Interesting. Tell me more.
4: Well, when we sleep, we often wake up for very short periods of time throughout the night. So short we don't even remember in the morning that we woke up. And it is known that stress exacerbates this sort of short wake-up cycle, but it wasn't really known why. So a team monitored the brain activity of mice while they slept, cozy in their little mouse beds, and they focused on a particular part of the brain called the preoptic area, which is crucial for regulating sleep. This is buried in your hypothalamus, which is deep in the center of your brain. And during this short stress-exacerbated awakening that they observed in the mice, the only neurons that seemed to be active were those with a protein called vesicular glutamate transporter 2, fancy name, or V-Glut2.
3: So maybe this protein, V-Glut2, is the culprit?
4: Exactly. And to look at this more closely, the team then inhibited V-Glut2 neurons in stressed mice so that they wouldn't fire. And they found that their brief awakenings went down by an entire third. And there are probably other parts of the brain involved in all of this, but if the same is true for humans, then we could maybe regulate these neurons in a way that would decrease the effects of stress on sleep. So you could be stressed but also well-rested.
3: Very reassuring. All right, Christy, <laughs> I've got some big news for fans of didgeridoos.
4: Well, you are looking at one of those right now, and by that I mean a big fan. Okay, Tim, what's the news?
3: I'm glad you clarified there for a moment. I did think you were <laughs> claiming to be a didgeridoo. Well, I can tell you that we now know what makes the best-sounding didgeridoo, according to science.
4: I mean, I'm personally of the opinion that they are all good didgeridoos, but please go on.
3: Okay, so let's just hear a clip of one. So that's a didgeridoo. They're made from hollowed-out eucalyptus branches and have been used by the indigenous peoples of northern Australia for at least 1,500 years. But exactly how the instrument makes the sound has been a bit of a mystery. An acoustic analysis found that the sound comes from the way a player's lips interact with reverberations in the surrounding air, and also how their vocal cords interact with the hollow tube. And this is what gives that drone-like sound they're really known for.
4: I really love a good droning musical number. (laughs) All right, now we know how this sound works. But Tim, what makes the best didgeridoo?
3: Well, the researchers found that didgeridoo players they really like instruments of a shape and size that give a resonant frequency above one kilohertz. And this seems to be just that right frequency level so that human vocal tracks can best control the sound.
4: One thing I'd like to tell you about Tim, you know when someone says they have to put on their thinking cap while they mull over a tough problem? Scientists have gone and made a sort of thinking cap. It is a sensor-filled helmet that the team behind it claims can turn thoughts into written words. Think voice to text, but in this case, brainwaves to text.
3: Uh, Yeah, I love this sort of research. I actually once wrote a feature about these devices for new scientists, and then actually rather embarrassingly, a picture of me wearing one of these silly caps ended (laughs) up in the print magazine. So what's actually the deal with this one? What's new about it?
4: Okay, first of all, where is that picture and how can I transmute it into sound waves for all of us to enjoy? (laughs) And second, the cap records electrical brain activity, which is a form of EEG. And that's then processed using an AI called D-Wave. That AI is trained on lots of EEG data from people reading out sentences. Then when it sees fresh new EEG data, the AI can predict what the person was saying from their brainwaves.
3: And how good was it?
4: Uh, It's not too bad, (laughs) though it's not amazing either. The current accuracy is about 40%, but one of the teams say their recent best tests are more like 60% accurate. So, you know, let's say you were saying the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dogs. The AI might read back something that had a dog in it and some jumping, but maybe the dogs are sleepy instead of lazy. And, you know, this was like a yellow fox or something like that. And the words are maybe in a different order, too.
3: Fair enough. So it's, of course, a while yet before we might all be wearing one of these. But I do find this approach to this kind of research a bit more appealing than potentially having electrodes surgically implanted into my brain, as some tech companies are researching at the moment.
4: Hard same, though I'm going to go a step further and say I'm not particularly eager to have my mind read by either method, though I know there are many people who would find this useful.
3: Before we go, something to look forward to next year. In 2024, a huge supercomputer designed to emulate the human brain is going to switch on. It's called Deep South, it's being built in Australia, and it will be capable of performing 228 trillion operations per second, which is comparable to the number of operations in the human brain.
4: It's not a normal computer, it's a cool computer. And it's also a neuromorphic one, meaning that it uses a sort of analog circuitry to mimic neurons. The hope is that it will give us a better understanding of the human brain. And the full story is available at newscientist.com. Finally, if looking forward to 2024 is something you'd like to do more of, we will have a nice roundup of other ghosts of science future coming after the new year in just a few weeks, which I can't believe I'm saying.
3: Yeah, just a few weeks. And that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening.
4: We'll be back next week. But until then, bye.
3: Bye.
2: This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.
6: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.